And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So, you know, I like to find interesting things to talk about. It's kind of the hallmark of the show. Well, today we're going to tell a story that begins with a fascinating find. How about that? Uh, The Dawson City film find is an occurrence that happened 1978 up in the Yukon in Canada, where hundreds of reels of Old silent films were uncovered, you know, filling holes in archives and becoming a historical uh, films of such historical significance, the likes of which may never be found again. That's where our story begins as we talk about the Hollywood and Hollywood and Klondike with researcher and museum curator Michael Gates. And there's so much of the story. We got to get right into this. Michael, thank you so much for being on the show today. First, first question I got to ask everyone. Do you like Michael? Do you like the gate master? Do you like Mikey? Uh, what can I call you? Michael's fine. Michael's fine. Okay. Can I yeah. use any of the other goofy names or are you completely opposed to them? Uh, uh, I find them a bit trivial. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's all I am. That's sorry. what I am. That's the definition. That's my definition. I am. Yeah, I am stick trivial. To all right. Stick stick to, all right. We'll keep it. To, keep it to Michael. We'll keep it. Uh, we'll keep it respectable between two gentlemen here, Michael. Uh, and <laughs> so this this whole story, right? This this thing that you found, this thing that defined your career, almost defined your life, gave you so many things. It's called the Dawson City Film Find, and that is where our story begins. And and what a story it is. And you know, basically, in a nutshell. You uh, and several other people kind of came across a hidden treasure trove of silent films buried deep in the Yukon Dawson City permafrost. And you have been the gatekeeper, if you don't mind my pun, of this fabulous find for, you know, almost 40 years now. Uh, This is quite an incredible story. Uh, I mean, am I right to say that this kind of is your you know, crown jewel of your career? No, it's one of them. Uh, one there of are a lot of other things I did. Yeah, yeah. Dawson City was, uh, it was a magical place. And I very quickly learned that it didn't matter what you did when you got up in the morning, you could expect something unusual to happen. So uh, <laughs> fi- finding a horde of silent movies wasn't the uh, the first surprise that I encountered uh, when when I moved to Dawson. So, so finding this, tre- this this treasure trove, this was as trivial to you as me calling you Mr. Mikey the Gatekeeper is uh, for your name. So these are very similar things, right? Well, uh, when this all started, uh, I didn't know if it would lead anywhere at all. So, you know, oh, fair enough. You start from you start from zero, and uh, yeah, uh, it, it could fizzle out, and nobody's interested, or it could be like it was and uh, right. everybody was interested <laughs> right yeah uh, so and this story takes place in the Yukon which is yeah. about as I don't want to say it's as barren as the Arctic Circle but I think at the time as we're gonna you know go back in time to the 1880s maybe 
it was pretty it was a pretty rural area. I mean, it's basically indigenous people struggling to survive, you know, akin to Inuits uh, in, in, you know, in, in the Arctic part of the world. So it's going to be this is a very interesting place, you know, so unusual things happening doesn't surprise me. But let's talk about you for a second. OK, uh, people got to know your bona fides. And at the time and, and for 20 years, you were the curator of the uh, curator of collections. When to get this right, curator of collections for the Klondike National Historic Sites. Uh, so, and you're from Whitehorse, which is a town I think we discussed six hours away from Dawson City. Actually, at, at the time I was from Ottawa. Oh, is that right? I moved from Ottawa. I was working at the National Museum. Okay. When I, uh, but I wanted to be in the Yukon. That was that was my goal, and uh, so when this opportunity really? came up, I took it. I packed my cat and my belongings in my truck, and I drove to the Yukon. <laughs> you sound like you would have been a gold rusher. I feel like you would have been a guy who was like, you know what? I don't. There's gold in them Nar Hills. I want to. I want to go to the Yukon. This is as good as uh, an opportunity as any. Would you have been one of those guys? I was never interested in gold. The, the gold for me is the history. Oh, okay. That is the gold nugget, right? Like those are, that's what you're looking for. Yeah. Uh, well, Whitehorse, you know, you're in Whitehorse now. And I thought this was interesting, you know, being from America, I have to fit this in uh, because in in Whitehorse, you know, uh, everyone knows Donald Trump across the world. He's making headlines for all of his own reasons. But what was interesting is I learned that Fred Trump, his grandfather, I believe, opened a brothel in Whitehorse right around, you know, the, the turn of the century in this Klondike gold rush era. He opened a brothel called the Arctic Hotel and Restaurant. And that was the foundation for his family fortune. Is there truth to the story? I don't know about the brothel part, but uh, he did run the Arctic uh, restaurant. Yes. Oh, it was a every, wasn't every hotel and restaurant a brothel back then. Didn't they always have a little bit of that on the side? Nah, no, 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 that's that's untrue. No. OK. All right. Uh, so, you know, sorry to disappoint you. No, nah, it's OK. I, you know, <laughs> it's the Wild West. I've got my own thoughts of the Wild West. So uh, but but anyway, so, so you were the you know, the curator there. You stumble across this find and you were able to, you, you know, there's so many historic sites in this area, you know, and being the curator of historic sites. I bet you were busy and, you know, all of these little things. And you use several archival newspapers, which is kind of fun to really give, um, you know, as you were discovering these films to find out when they were actually screened, which was really cool. The three newspapers you used were The Sun, which was, which was established in 1898, The Klondike Nugget, also in 1898, and The Dawson City Daily News, which was 1899. Those years are crucial uh, when we talk about The Klondike Gold Rush. And I did a whole Fascinating Nouns episodes on small-time newspapers, so they are as important now as they were back then. But this must have been a lot of fun going back through the archives and just reading about all the news and all the characters, you know, as you as you study them, the history, and then hear all those individual, you know, little tales, uh, you know, tales and lore. That must have been a lot of fun. Well, the newspapers were a lot more informative and interesting then than they are now. And, uh, <laughs> and it, yeah. you, you go looking for something in the newspaper, and there are so many other things happening. Uh, right. You know, you'll you'll say, I, I got to keep my focus. Got to keep my attention where it's supposed to be. And they say, oh, mm -hmm. that looks interesting. And you start reading this article and then you start reading that article. And, uh, and then you look at your watch and it's been an hour and you thought, I better get started. <laughs> right. Yeah. But that's that's what's so fun about all this stuff, you know. Um, and, and one last thing here, you know, uh, that I want to mention is that you 
in 2020. Well, what a great year that was, by the way. Uh, you were the inaugural story laureate of UConn, and this was a, an award and a two-year position. I mean, that that's pretty cool. I don't think they just give that to everybody. Uh, well, I, I guess I was lucky, and it, it turned into a three-year position because of COVID, but uh, it'll... Uh, uh, on December 31st, that'll be the end of my term. Oh, you so oh, so it extended. So you're still you're still running. You got six more months on your and your. Do you get reelected or do you have a campaign going? Uh, no, or are you no, raising no, it's fund, fundraising. Nothing like that. They have a jury and no. uh, they say here here are the criteria. You know, lay out your your experience, and uh, we have three jurors who will scrutinize all of the people who put their names forward, and we'll decide who we think is the best fit. I love it. I mean, it's kind, of, it's kind of cool that you got to squeeze an extra 365 days out. That's fun. Well, right? we didn't didn't get to do much during that period. Uh, it was sure. it was all remote, uh, you know, sort of video things. It, it takes the fun out of it. And uh, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, next next week, I'll be uh, talking to uh, giving a talk to the governor general who is. Oh, hello. Yeah, he's coming to the Yukon or she is coming to the Yukon and she'll mm -hmm. be meeting with all the lieutenant governors from all the provinces across Canada and the commissioners from all the territories. And this is something that you don't have in the United States because. Yeah, it's a lot of Canadian, a lot of Canadian terminology. There. Yeah, we, can, we come out <laughs> of the British tradition and the. Uh, sure. Uh, these these are the people who represent the crown. We have this a, mm -hmm. a, a, a parliamentary form of government here. And, mm -hmm. and so at one time they were very important. Uh, they were like governors. But uh, sure. but now they are. Um, uh, they're sort of a figurehead and a representative of the crown in our in Canada. Yeah, we got rid of those guys a long time ago. You guys stuck around <laughs> and partnered with them. I, how about minting all that? They got to mint all the money now. I mean, now you got the old King King uh, King Charles on the money. You got to get you got to mint everything, <laughs> yeah. right? Isn't that uh, going to be a pain in the butt? Well, we have to start uh, putting some of the old money away because it'll be worth something someday. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's kind of cool. Uh, so let's let's get into this. Let's talk about the history. That's what we came here to do. Uh, so this is going to be a very tricky story to weave here, Michael. And I think we can do it because as I was reading the book, uh, the book is called uh, Klondike in Hollywood. Uh, do you happen to have you know, something handy you want to show us? What, what, are we, what are we dealing with here? Hollywood. Klondike in Hollywood. Hollywood, in the, Hollywood in the Klondike. That's it. Hollywood and the Klondike. My, my, my bad. Uh, so this is a, a fantastic read. And, you know, uh, I didn't even I learned that there's a documentary as well that that does that fills in some of the gaps that um, uh, so there's a lot going on in this area. So we got a lot to talk about. But I think here's what I'm going to lay out for you, Michael. I think that the catalyst for this whole story is this discovery of this treasure trove of silent films, some which are were given the nature of film at the time, don't exist anywhere else. This this was this filled in a gap in cinematic history that is extraordinarily important across the world. So you find them and restoring them. That's that's a part of the story. But how they got there. That's the natural question that anyone's going to ask. And there's multi parts to that because you have to talk about the history of Dawson City, which is in the Yukon. Uh, you've got to talk about the Klondike Gold Rush because that's why Dawson City exists. And if you want to get to films, you have to talk about theater and live entertainment and why it was so unique in Dawson City. That's a whole sub sub uh, sub conversation as well. And, you know, the connection between Klondike and Hollywood 
you know, it's not just Hollywood and the Klondike. In a lot of ways, it's Klondike in Hollywood because a lot of these characters ended up having quite, quite incredible careers and being, you know, very influential in, in, in Hollywood. So we're going to try to weave all this together. But, you know, l- let's start out with the Yukon here, Michael, because you live there. You know what I'm about to say. And as harsh as it the weather seems now, before roads, before ro- railways, this was almost unlivable in the Yukon in Canada. If I'm getting this right, it took five days via a horse-drawn sleigh to get there into win- in the winter. I mean, this is Jingle Bells type stuff, you know, right dashing through the snow in a one-horse open sleigh. It sounds super and merry when you sing it at Christmas time, but if you have to deal with that for five days at minus 50 degrees Celsius, open air, long nights, br- the ground's permanently frozen, this sounds like an Arctic wasteland how was it for the first people going up there to explore this area? Well, let, let's let's be clear. The the first people that, uh, here in the Yukon have been around for twelve thousand years or more. Well, I mean, not the. I'm talking about getting there because the indigenous people living there, they're loving it. Yeah. I mean, they've been there for yeah. a long time. Yeah. They're they're, they're, they're well totally adapted. cool there. Yeah, well adapted. Okay. I'm talking about the the dopes coming in trying to you know. Well, for starters, get all the stuff out of the land. For starters, uh, it didn't take five days. That was. Uh, once things that's were true. established, okay. that's how long it took to get from Whitehorse to Dawson City. But if you were okay. c- coming okay. in during the gold rush, it would take about three months. And the reason, holy cow! Yeah, well, the reason for that <laughs> was Oregon Trail stuff. Holy cow! They, they didn't have all <laughs> wow. the uh, uh, connections uh, established. They they started they had to go from zero to sixty almost instantly. Wow! And, and uh, you know, once once word got out that uh, there was there was gold in the Klondike, everybody wanted to be there. And mm-hmm. uh, they they started stampeding north, and the uh, uh, in 1897 there there it was the beginning of this this stampede, and uh, so many people uh, headed north, ill prepared, that the first mm-hmm. winter in Dawson they thought there was going to be a famine and people were going to starve to death, and so the mounted wow. the mounted police said okay, uh, from J- January of 1898 on anybody who wants to come into the Yukon, they have to bring a year's supply of goods with them. And the only right. way the only way they could do that was to haul it themselves. They, they could hire Teamsters. Uh, uh, the uh, the First Nations uh, hired themselves out and uh, made mm-hmm. a very lucrative trade hauling their, sure. their supplies. But if you wanted to do it yourself, and uh, this was mm-hmm. you know the, the poor man's way of getting to the Klondike, you had to carry a ton of supplies from Dai on the coast in coastal Alaska to the headwaters yeah. of the Yukon River, which is about 32 miles. And if you can, mm-hmm. if you can handle a 50-pound pack, mm-hmm. and you had to go 32 miles and then come back, and then take another 50 pounds, 32 miles. By the time you're finished, you've wow. got 2,400 miles. Holy cow. Okay, so digest that. Holy cow, yeah. All right. That's step one. That's step one. <laughs> and then once you got there, you had to learn how to yeah. build a boat and, and construct one. You had to cut the trees down. You had to make yourself a pit saw. You had to find a partner, and you you saw a way at, uh, at, at the, the these trees you cut down to create the planks to construct the boat that was going to get you to Dawson City. And wow. uh, most of the people didn't know how to do that, so you know they'd look around and see what other people were doing. And uh, you know some of them were seasoned veterans and knew what was up, and others started from scratch. So right. hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of boats being constructed 
in readiness for the, the breakup in the spring. And uh, mm-hmm. when that happened, I think the first day there were 700 boats on uh, on Bennett wow. Lake heading toward the Klondike. And they had uh, about 500 nautical miles or river miles to, to get there. And they had some obstacles to overcome on the way. And the, uh, the biggest one was uh, getting through the lakes and uh, making passage through Miles Canyon and the Whitehorse Rapid. And a lot of people died trying to navigate those those treacherous waters. Uh, after that, it was relatively straightforward floating from there to Dawson City. I think one of the stats I heard was 100,000 people went out during the height and 70,000 basically died or turned back along the way. So that's a success rate of 30%. <laughs> Is that close? Uh, that's that's a close approximation. I wouldn't say that 70,000 died. Uh I would. It's more exciting. But they, they turned. I said. I said perished or turned back. So they they didn't make it. Let's say that's right. Uh, it was it was a pretty daunting task, and as they got closer and closer to their target, they encountered mm-hmm. more and more obstacles. And can you imagine standing at the foot of a snow covered mountain pass and you looked up yeah. seventeen hundred feet, and it's just this <laughs> continuous chain of people struggling up the seventeen hundred foot incline in right. steps that were hacked into the ice to get to the top wow. to deposit your goods and then you you have to come back down and do it again and you do that 30 or 40 times and i think that was probably the the place where most people said i i don't think i want to go any That's further it. and i'm guessing there wasn't an upstairs case and a downstairs case so you had to struggle with people going one way, right? Everyone's going same well, two, no, two directions, one staircase. No, they had one staircase up, and uh, uh, you could slide down. They had sort of chutes to <laughs> come down. All right. So coming, oh, that's coming down part was easy, but the going up was, uh, and I've done it. I've hiked the Chilkoot, and uh, it, yeah. it's, uh, you have to be in pretty good physical shape to do it. Yeah, I would imagine so. Well, so let so let's pause it there. So that's the beginning of the gold rush. This is how how snowy Arctic the Yukon is, and it's it's. I wouldn't say it's similar, but it is. I mean, it's it's not as uh, settled uh, as other parts of Canada. We can say. I mean, it's still pretty rural up there, right? Oh well, we have a, a land area twice the size of Great Britain and uh, a population of about uh, 40,000 people. That's that's a pretty big pretty big landmass. Yeah, mo- land most of them are in Whitehorse, so 25,000, 28,000 of them. <laughs> right. So, that's what 75% of the population. There, in, there in are more moose here than there are people. <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, I mean that's that's a great place to live for sure. So let's we got to start at the beginning. We got to start we got to start at this film find, okay? So, this is a pretty cool story. I know I'm going to botch up some of the beginning, but I'm going to get this rolling. Basically, there's a skating rink. Now, I have no idea what an ice skating rink is doing in the middle of the Yukon, but there was one. There was one there. It is Canada. I know you, you Canucks love your love your hockey, so I don't blame you. So you had a skating rink, and and you were tearing it down. So there's an alderman, a man named Frank Barrett, who was both the alderman and the guy who owned the backhoe that was demolishing the building. I mean, that is some real small town stuff. Is that not true? Not quite. He he was okay. an alderman, and he was acting mayor at the time. And uh, okay. they hired a backhoe operator to come in and uh, okay. test the ground there to see whether you know how bad the permafrost was. Because when you build in Dawson, you have to factor in the permafrost conditions. 
that's another story. We won't get into that. No, no, no. It's just it was interesting. I will tell you. I think Bill Morrison did this documentary called Dawson City, Frozen City, or something. Dawson, or, uh, Dawson City, Frozen Time. Dawson City, Frozen Time. All the little tit- tidbits that you have shook your head and said no to, I took from that movie and not from your book. I do want to point that out. So well, in the movie, it does say he was the guy who owned the, the backhoe. So uh, I thought that was kind of cool. That feel, felt very small town. But anyway, so he's demolishing the skating rink. Uh, the the guy running the backhoes, pulling up dirt. And all of a sudden, celluloid spaghetti is all over the place. Uh, reels and reels of old film are there. You know, this happened in July 4th of 1978. Now, that date means nothing to you guys. It's a very important date for us down here in the States. On that day, all these films kind of appear in the earth, and you are called onto the scene and do a brilliant thing, which I know about because I studied film and television. I'm known as the master of film and television down here in the United States. And you took a match to this to a piece of this film. And I don't want to say it exploded. That's probably sensational. But it definitely went up in, in flames, which is what old film does. And at that moment, you realized how important this could possibly be. So walk me through just some of the moments. You're a fresh-faced kid. You know, you've got your, your museum certification. you got a degree. You've just come out here. Uh, this is the first thing, the big thing that happens to you, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I didn't know it at the time, but it turned into a big thing, yes. So what's that like to like walk on the scene and see all the stuff? Like what, what happens at that point? Well, I walked in uh, and as you say, I uh, had to determine whether this is old film or not so old film. And mm-hmm. uh, so I, I, I did the flame test. It burns with ferocious intensity. And uh, <laughs> sure does. <laughs> so, so I knew it was older rather than uh, newer. And I guess did you did you keep your eyebrows so when you lit it were your eyebrows gone <laughs> were your no, eyelashes from your head singed well, I'll tell you what I did on uh, uh, a little bit later I I tried it again I took about four <laughs> feet of this film and I held uh-huh. it over a, a, a galvanized metal garbage can okay I lit it and I dropped it in and the flame shot eight feet in the air and it melted the galvanizing off the outside of the can. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah, so. That's that's how ferocious. I mean, that is for sure. Oh, that's, yeah. They warned me. They told me you know, yeah. not to play around with it. Yeah. yeah. It's also valuable, by the way. You're burning history. Uh, you know, well, uh, I, I just want to make that point clear. I, I took a piece of film that didn't have anything on it. So All right, fair enough, I wasn't fair burning enough. history right, there. Good. Okay. So the point at which I decided that this was really exciting and really interesting happened a few days later when I was doing some unrelated research in the old newspapers, and I came across an advertisement in October 1917 in the Dawson News for one of the films that I had identified when I went to the site to look at these this discovery. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, not only did I know they were old, I knew exactly how old. And right. for some reason, making that connection it, uh, it made everything much more interesting. And that's when I, I started making phone calls and trying to rustle up a little interest down east, uh, phone mm-hmm. various agencies and uh, uh, programs, and, uh, oh, yeah, they're kind of interested, but, you know, try someone else. And so they kind right. of gave me the runaround until I got to Sam Kula, who was the director of the National Film Archives. So I told him what we were finding, and he said, that sounds really interesting. Can you Can you send me a little bit more detail? And so a few days later, I went back to the site, I looked more closely at the film, 
I did a, mm-hmm. uh, went back to the office. Uh, I gave him five points of description. Mm-hmm. I sent that to him by Telex. You remember Telex? Are you old enough to know? No, def- definitely not. Okay, well, it was, <laughs> I've heard of it in myth and rumor, in legend and lore. <laughs> okay, well, you have a typewriter, and you type on yeah. it, and there's another <laughs> typewriter somewhere else, and it starts typing. Magical. Out, out comes the message. It was, it was there before fax. Yeah. It was there before yeah, email. Yeah, yeah. So sure. I sent a, a Telex to Sam Kula, and uh, within a short time, I received a reply that said, I'm on my way. I'm arriving on the plane. This is the wow. director of the National Film Archives. He said, can yeah, you yeah. book me a room for two nights? And uh, so I met him at the airport and took him into town. We went to yeah. the site. We looked at it, started poking around. In my book, you'll see some photos where we're, you know, with shovels uh, kind of mm-hmm. moving around in the rubble. And because there wasn't just film there. It was a lot of other stuff, all kinds of mm-hmm. debris. And the story about that became clear to us sometime later. And he said, I think there's some potential here. He said, uh, because so many films have been lost from the silent era, there's the potential of finding some really important stuff. And he said, it's worth it to recover this. He didn't want to work with another government agency because there are too many hoops to jump through. So we we got the director of the Dawson Museum, Kathy Jones, to come and join us Mm -hmm. in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, we we talked about how we would recover these films and what information he needed to know whether it was worth shipping it to Ottawa. And right. I took him back to my office, and over the telephone, he dictated the uh, terms of the contract to one of his minions back in Ottawa. And uh, the, the contract arrived, the Das Museum took over, and uh, that was the beginning of, of history. They, yeah. they hauled... Uh, thousands of reels or hundreds, many hundreds of reels of film. And uh, they, they took them out to secure facility that we provided for them uh, just outside of Dawson. And there they very carefully went through them reel by reel, identifying the contents. And so in September, they sent this list to Sam Kula in Ottawa. And uh, he, he, it became a press release. And that's when mm-hmm. the uh, the media became very interested. That's uh, when we started getting phone calls. That's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we started getting radio interviews, you know, national uh, syndicated programs were calling various people up to, to get the story. And sure. so there was a heightened interest and, and it wasn't restricted to Canada. It, uh, it got coverage in the United States. It got coverage in Europe, overseas, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, it uh, I guess it was viral before we knew what viral was. It, it was as viral as it, it was the equivalent of viral, the same way the teletype was the equivalent of email. Like it was as viral as 1978 could get. Yeah. Uh, which is pretty still pretty. I mean, it's it's still national news. Uh, but this is you know, this is pretty exciting. And, and all those, you know, all the characters will will come into play, uh, you know, and I, even there's a great story uh, because this film uh, is so I mean, the, the contents, I think, were. It was an explosive that was used that that um, Kodak turned into film, which is why it's so highly explosive. I mean, it worked it for you know for 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 film, and the emulsion could be attached to it. Uh, but this you know this is highly explosive stuff. It's unstable. 
Uh, so as you said, a lot of the films from that era would sometimes spontaneously combust in in warehouses, you know, in projection if it's not stored properly. So the fact that it was in the permafrost for so long is what kept it preserved. So this is this is an incredible find. So you find this stuff, you're restoring it. You know, at some point the U.S. comes to the rescue with some of the restoration, which we'll get to that in a second. But let's so that's where we're going to pause it. No one we've got the stuff. It's important. People are excited. No one really knows where it came from, why it's there. And now, just like a real movie, we're going to cut back to 1895, the beginning of the story. We kind of hinted at it earlier, the Klondike Gold Rush. People found gold, uh, you know, right in right around where Dawson City is now. Now, an interesting side note here is that this happened right around 1895. And in 1895, the Lumiere brothers were kind of perfecting their own version. Uh, I think it was called the the cinematography. My French is a little, my French is off. But they're they're developing devices to project and to create movies at this time. So this is a kind of a a very unique time in our history. Uh, So let's talk about the beginning of Dawson City. You know, it's founded, goals coming into the area. Tell me a little bit about the early days uh, right around this time. Wow. Uh, well, it uh, it grew very rapidly. Uh, it sort of mm-hmm. uh, it grew before the infrastructure could uh, keep up. And right, uh, yeah. And I I got a passage from my book. If you want, I could read that. And I think yeah, it gives absolutely. It, Let's hear it. Okay, so this Definitely. is this is a description. And uh, so by um, 1897, there were maybe five thousand people. In the following mm-hmm. year, that that tripled. There were probably twenty five thousand people in the Klondike area. People in mm-hmm. the gold fields would would come into town and people in town will go out to the gold field. So there was this circulating population of about 25,000 people. Wow. Meanwhile, gold continued to flow into Dawson City from Klondike mines in unimaginable quantities in 1898. Mm -hmm. Constant stream of new arrivals crowded the shoreline. Tents sprang up by the hundreds. By mid-July, the Mounted Police counted over 4,000 people, as well as nearly 1,300 log buildings. In the heart of the business section facing the Yukon River, these simple cabins were replaced by two- and three-story log structures with false clabbered facades, creating a veneer of sophistication over the rough-and-ready avenue that was rapidly growing. At the south end of the waterfront was the stockade of the Northwest Mounted Police. North of that was a long line of hotels, saloons, 33 by count, gambling parlors, music halls, restaurants, 42 by count, and theaters. Beside these were 16 doctor's offices, six jewelry stores, and seven laundries. To the north of these, Front Street was dominated by massive commercial stores of the Alaska Commercial and North American Transportation Trading Companies. Within months, the population of Dawson exploded from 3,000 to nearly 16,000. As many as 40,000 were scattered throughout the territory. The city struggled to keep up with the accelerating expansion and problems, including constant construction, a lack of goods and services, a lack of sanitary facilities, and continual coming and going under the midnight sun. Don't forget, um, at this time of year, we uh, it doesn't get dark until August. Mm-hmm. Right. The Klondike was a case study in extremes. Dawson City was nestled in the wilderness thousands of kilometers from civilization, yet it quickly became the most modern and cosmopolitan of cities. It was a land of great fortune and bounty for some, failure and hardship for others. Some lived on champagne while others ate beans. The summer days were long and warm. The winter nights were equally long and bitterly cold. 
Amid the excitement and aura of gold, men and women were suffering from scurvy, malnutrition, and consumption. Typhoid fever reached epidemic proportions, a product of poor sanitation and a lack of clean drinking water. I'm just about finished. The smell of sawdust and shit mingled with the sound of hammers pounding, music playing, and the jumble of a dozen different languages. When the weather was warm and dry, the streets were hard and dusty. With a few days of rain, they turned into muddy quagmires that sucked the boots off of men's feet and mired teams of horses and their drivers knee-deep in the muck. Thousands milled about, milled about the waterfront. It was a gigantic carnival. One observer even likened it to the fairgrounds at the World's Fair. Amid it all were the saloons and the dance halls and the theaters. It was a crazy place. It sure was. And that's the only time that you swear in your book, by the way, I think. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's the, the only, that's naughty the only moment. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's a, a factual reality. I'm not doing it to shock anybody. That's the way it was. Sure. No. And, and that doesn't come as a shock. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's exactly what it was like. That is such a wonderful description because there are so many things in that, right? You've got the the remote nature of, of the Yukon, the limited supplies, the boom and bust nature. There were people who were instant millionaires. This is this is the largest gold bearing place on the planet that that's ever existed. I believe uh, you've got you know the haves and the have nots. Uh, you've you've got you know, a town that is l- the definition of a boom town, growing, tripling in size. You're talking about 1897, 1898 were its biggest years. Hun- tens of thousands of people are just suddenly appearing overnight. You've got constant construction, which requires resources, resources that can't get to the to, to Dawson City, that to be found someplace uh, or you go without, you, you know, the, the long nights because of the where it is on, on ge- you know, geographically on the earth. There's so much going on that makes this particular area so special. And everyone's nouveau riche. You know, there's no old money here. <laughs> These are, you know, this is a, a town full of, of Rodney Dangerfields from from Caddyshack. I mean, these are people who are just throwing money around, throwing gold nuggets at, you know, waitresses and, and, and performers. It's a wild time, you know, uh, to be alive for sure. It was wild. And but at the same time, it was very peaceful. Mounted police mm. made sure that uh, we didn't have it's the kind Canada. Of, of course, it's it Canada. Is. We don't we don't do that stuff. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's no, a very there, tame Wild West. There, there nice was, place to live. There, there was a film, the the miniseries, a few years ago, and in it they had gunfights and bodies stacking up like cordwood. And it wasn't like that. By <laughs> 1900, uh, they were still mining by hand. They produced yeah, a, right, mi- right. a million ounces of gold. Wow, by hand. By hand. That's nuts. Yeah. Well, that's that, that's how dense it was. Of yeah, gold. Exactly. Um, here's what's crazy. But, you know, when I'm reading this book, because there's so mu- like there's so much packed into the first couple chapters. And then when I took a step back, it almost it, it goes slow motion in the beginning. Right. Because so much happens in 1896, 1897, 1890, you know, 1897, the first theaters built, which is mostly vaudeville. So that's that's the beginning of our theater, of our entertainment. People are stuck there for seven months. I forgot to mention this. So you have nothing to do. So you got to go to theaters. Thingers, th- theaters spring up, uh, you know, but you have so much happening for the first couple of years. But by 1901, I believe. People are kind of gotten the individual miner has gotten out of the mining game. They've sold it to a company. Consolidation is starting to happen. Steam powered machines are being brought up. So, you know, really from 1896 to 1900, that's only four years. 
Four years of wild times, but there's a lot, a lot of juicy tidbits packed into that short amount of time. Uh, it was a, an amazing time. It was it was crazy. And you can yeah. imagine guys who had scrabbled and mucked for years, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, get a five cent pen and, and uh, you know, they're ecstatic. A five mm-hmm. cent pen, by the way, is the amount of gold that they, they recover panning one gold, uh, one one shovel full out in a gold pen. Oh, and, interesting. Okay. Okay. And to suddenly uh, encounter a pastry where you were getting $800 a pan. Mm-hmm. Now, multiply that by 30, mm-hmm. 35, and that'll give you some idea of how much that would be worth in today's figures. So imagine wow. a, a pan of gold. With twenty-five yeah. or thirty thousand dollars worth of gold in it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's nuts because even the gold dust. I mean, there was there was a couple interesting stories. You know, even late into the gold mining, into the nineteen tens and teens, they had dredges that were just taking up the muck from the from the the river, and that had gold dust in it that was worth the dredging. I mean, yeah. that you know, uh, uh, like just the stuff that fell off was worth looking for. And one of the old saloons had been abandoned for years. But basically, I think someone found a bunch of gold dust around the bar that was worth sweeping up and keeping. I mean, that's how like rife with gold this place was. It, that's it was, right. They, it was would, they would take the old buildings if they demolished them before yeah. they, they did anything else. They go in and they pan under the foundations because. <laughs> that's nuts. That's I fact. mean, that's like pulling out gold teeth. You know, the mortician pulling out gold teeth. You know, I mean, that's <laughs> like that's really really good but it's i mean it had to have been worth it right uh so so let's let's i'm going to quickly sum up 1898 because this is i've got the most notes here but there are a couple of really interesting things i'm going to try to blast through them uh you know but there are the the ratio you know uh, hey guys uh, <laughs> this isn't a place to be Eighteen thousand men 631 women as a matter of fact you know the name mary purdy was the 631st registered woman uh that that's that ratio is nuts you know by you know by 1898, there were no stakes to be claimed. So two years in, miners already don't have any anywhere to stake a claim. And, you know, you mentioned that there are three types of people, and this really defines the economy. There were those who had gold, those who were, didn't have gold, and those who are trading businesses and services for gold. And, you know, there's this old adage, I think it was in the TV show Deadwood, where they, you know, they basically say, that if you want to get rich during a gold rush, you want to sell the miners the tools. That's where the money is. Selling supplies to gold to, to people mining is where you get where you get paid, not actually doing the mining. Uh, you know, you, you you went through all the list of all the, the you know, the stuff the 16 doctors offices, six jewelry stores, seven laundries. Uh, so this is I mean, this is quite a quite a bit. And, you know, you mentioned that there was no violence. It's not like the American Wild West and our weird obsession with guns. But you did have <laughs> nine fires for the fires, I think the the business district of Dawson was burned down every year for nine years, and a couple of those were suspected arson. So you guys have your lunatics too, is what I'm saying. Well, bear in mind that uh, <laughs> your firebugs they they built these these buildings very quickly. Uh, yeah, imagine right, right. a building yeah, yeah. that now that would take a year to construct. They were putting them up in five weeks. So that's insane. Yeah. Uh, they they didn't have the you know sort of the the fire regulations. There was no fire marshal there to say, no, you have to do this. You have to have, uh, mm-hmm. you know, fire guards and uh, brick chimneys, sure. and and that's where the problem with the fire started. And of course, everything was built with wood. Right. And on top of that, they didn't have at first. They didn't even have firefighting equipment. The only way they could stop the spread of the fire was to either 
drag the buildings out of the way or blow them up. Blow them up, yes. The yeah. dynamite yeah. blowing up buildings next to it. <laughs> what? <laughs> that, yeah. How did that not start more fires? I mean, I don't know, but it worked, I guess. I it mean, did. they wouldn't do it, yes, right? Yes, it did. Because you can't go to the river. You're, so it's right on the river. I mean, this is like the ultimate, you know, water, water everywhere, but not a, a bucket full to put out a fire. I mean, there's, it's all frozen, especially during the winter. You know, you can't even do a bucket brigade. And later on, they had fire, you know, fire engines. But there seemed to be a malfunction Every single time they tried to put out a fire. So, uh, you know, <laughs> it was fire was a fire was a problem. Uh, so so that's that's the area. So that's the that's that's what we're talking about here during this time. And so entertainment springs up. You got seven months. It's dark. There's not a lot going on. You can't leave. You're stuck in Dawson City. So all of these, you know, tons of the theater scenes springs up. And there's, you know, a lot of people became stars overnight. You know, Cad Wilson is someone who appears routinely in your book as a singer who who you talk, who you say, um, uh, you know, no pun intended. She lit the theater thing on the theater scene on fire. She wasn't pretty. Uh, her She had a weak voice and no figure. But she had such a hypnotic stage presence and elaborate costumes that people were throwing gold nuggets. She was like one of the richest entertainers in town, I think. Uh, I mean, not a resounding. It doesn't sound like you love her that much or that people didn't. Uh, but they also did as well. Well, they had uh, they had a very interesting way of introducing Cad Wilson. The, the theater manager would come out and he introduced her and he said she just got a letter from her mother. And, and the letter said, make sure you pick nice, clean men. And he says, yeah. and I asked you fellas if he does, she doesn't pick them clean. <laughs> she sure did. She sure did. Uh, so, you know, uh, so at this time, there's lots of theaters going up. You know, there's um, the, the Grand, let's see, the Grand Opera House, uh, the Monte Carlo comes up later on. The Orpheum becomes one of the, the major players later on. Uh, you know, there's there's a, there's a lot of theaters going in. A lot of them get burned down. They get rebuilt. They get bought out. They change theaters. Uh, you know, a lot of the the um, theater troops are kind of remaining the same. They're moving around from, you know, from theater to theater. There's kind of a lot going on. Uh, but as we kind of move through history and I don't want to go fast forward too much here, uh, but I want to get to, you know, so live theater, as I mentioned, Lumiere Brothers are doing their thing. Edison doing his thing. And right around 1906, I believe, this is when cinema kind of comes to Dawson. So at this time, you know, just for a quick history lesson, cinema is not movies. Cinema is literally, I think the Lumiere brothers train coming into a station was like, uh, would be the, the number one box office for the, <laughs> for the week. It's literally a train of a film of a train coming into a station, which was freaking people out, by the way, they thought a train was really going to run them over in the theater. So 1906, the Orpheum starts showing pictures uh, and they have, you know, they're doing boxing matches as well. Um, you know, the, I think the boxing matches were filmed and they were showing them. So they're, they're, that's, this is where it kind of comes in. So tell me a little bit about the transition from theater to cinema that was going on at this time. Okay, well, the first moving picture shown in Dawson was early September of 1898. And Oh, wow. Oh, I didn't realize that. Oh, early yes. 1898. That it's was the year the to be there, man. The that was, I, I don't know how I missed that. 17 pages <laughs> of notes, and that's the one thing I missed. But what about 1898, by the way? What a great year to be there. Anyway, I'm sorry. Yeah. Continue. At first, the moving pictures were just a little supplement. They were... Uh, you know, a little novelty feature that was mm -hmm. added to the live entertainment. Right. But as the population declined and the gold uh, uh, production started to decline, 
mm-hmm. uh, the the theater world and, and and the government of course started making all these these ridiculous rules like you mm-hmm. can't serve liquor in the same place where you have a dance hall so now right. you've got a dance hall and no liquor and next door they've got uh, you know a saloon so mm-hmm. they cut a hole in the wall between them and pass the liquor through. <laughs> so they had to amend the law to say that there could be no passage or entryway. They, they have about 15 different terms, a, a chute, a, a, you know, a, 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 yeah. a, a tunnel or whatever. Right. Uh, <laughs> so to make it absolutely clear that, uh, yeah. and, and all this did was uh, it, it took the profitability out of these theaters because right. during the Haiti of the gold rush, um, a theater, you'd have a saloon at the front, and that would be where the gaming was taking place. So they'd play Pharaoh and they'd have roulette and uh, various card games. And then behind that, they'd have uh, a theater and they'd have you know, a, a make piece orchestra because, you, uh, you know, you might end up with a, a flute player and a fiddler and uh, someone who could play drums, whatever mm-hmm. you could assemble. Right. Whatever you and, can get, it is, it is Dawson. It's that's Klondike. right. That's right. Whatever you got, and, yeah. And the entertainment was much the same. You know, somebody might. Sure. Uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, they they put on this variety program, and then at some point, that would end. They'd pull all the benches aside. The orchestra would strike up, and they would dance until the early hours of the morning. And the yeah. the ladies would charge uh, a dollar a dance and keep half of the proceeds, and it was very lucrative. And there were lots of uh, gentlemen there willing to spend their money doing that. In fact, in fact, one fellow, um, he came. He 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 sold his claim for fifty thousand dollars. And there were two sisters. Uh, they they lovingly called them Vaseline and Glycerine. And they yeah, took, right. <laughs> they took took turns dancing with him until they uh, they they basically danced him out of his fortune. Uh, so you can see how lucrative this was 24 hours yeah. a day and yeah. all these things were going on but uh when when they started putting all these bylaws in place it it took all the fun out of uh, making money and the dance halls pretty much came to a a, a halt uh, in 1904 so that mm. that was a big turning point and by that time the live theater was gone they had to rely on visiting theatrical groups coming through or putting on amateur local productions. And so by 1910, they they were starting to show films on a regular basis. By that time, the supply chain was uh, adequate to to keep them supplied with films all year round. And, uh, but, and this is an important thing to remember. It was too expensive to ship these films back once they got to Dawson. And, uh, these films, by the time they got to Dawson, they were, you know, four, sometimes even five years old. So mm-hmm. there was no point in sending them back. Nobody wanted right. to see a five-year-old movie. So right. they, they, they just stored them, you know, every once in a while they'd pull them out and show them again. Yeah. And that was key. I mean, it was the end of the distribution line. They weren't going anywhere else. They were staying yeah. there. They wouldn't, weren't getting shipped back. And, you know, this, this becomes very important. One thing I forgot to mention is that the Orpheum Theater was owned by Alex Pantages, uh, and which that name becomes very important later on. That's right. I want to just put, put I want to pin that for everybody. So, so they're, they're showing movies, you know, the, the 1911, you mentioned that there was a lot of amateur theater. 
uh, I think the Dawson Amateur Athletic Association, they create the family theater. This play, you know, so very quickly, this the DAAA, I think is what they, they call it. This was bananas. I think it was built in 1902. It was basically like a YMCA. They had an ice rink. Again, it's the Yukon. I don't know. There's a lake right behind you, but whatever. Well, the, uh, the, uh, the ice rink is to keep the place warm. It's not to keep it cold. Of course it is. <laughs> is it? I don't you want you don't want to be outside when it's forty below. So you're inside where with oh, the rink fair. but it's warmer. I thought they were using ice as a heater. Like, oh well this is only zero degrees. <laughs> the ice is minus forty. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh they, they had a Turkish bath, they had a gymnasium. I was kind of amazed by how advanced it was from a, a physical track. fitness standpoint. They had a running track that went around the mezzanine. That's crazy to me. That's not, I didn't even think fitness, I was just listening to another podcast about fitness and fitness, at least in America, didn't even come really into the minds of people, especially running until like the 1950s or 40s, 40s and 50s. So this was very ahead of its time. Uh, But but anyway, so this, this, this athletic association becomes the family theater and they become very involved in cinema and cinema as well. And, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm we're, 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 this is going so quickly. Uh, I want to make sure that, that I'm fitting everything in. So by 1913, I believe at this point, this is where I, my, some things get kind of goofed up. But by 1913, it was kind of a two-man race for the, uh, with the DAAA, the Family Theater, and the Orpheum to show movies. Is that right? Is by that time, there are only two theaters really uh, going? Well, there were uh, there was also the Arctic Brotherhood Hall, and they occasionally okay. showed films there. And then in uh, the Auditorium Theater, which today we know is the Palace Grand, they showed okay. films in there as well. So, they did. Okay. but but the Orpheum and the Family Theater were the two mainstays. The other two, you know, uh, it was more sporadic. So, got it. Yes, there were two main theaters, but there uh, on in August of 1914, there were three theaters showing full movies full time. Okay. Yeah, because in my notes in nineteen thirteen, I think the auditorium was being revamped. And that's important because these theaters were constantly trying to upgrade. And meanwhile, the film industry is going as well. They're improving and their movies are getting better and their equipment's getting better. And by nineteen twenty-six, people are talking in movies, and then that has to all be, you know, kind of kind of redone. So this this all becomes really interesting. So let's talk. So World War One happens. You know, a, a lot of things are, are, you know, going on at this time. Everything's kind of put on hold. But so let's talk right around uh, 1927 to 1930. I want to get this right. So by 1927, uh, there is, I think, the Trail of 98. We didn't even talk about any of the people like Robert Service, who was in the Klondike. And so this movie was going to shoot in Dawson. But they ended up shooting it in Whitehorse, so this was kind of a disappointment. But this was well, at the part, partly in Whitehorse. Uh, the bulk okay. of the film was shown uh, was filmed in Colorado, but they, oh. they they sent a film crew to Whitehorse and they yeah. they they filmed footage of the Whitehorse Rapids and uh, and Got other it. features that they could insert into the film. Got it. Okay. Okay. People in Dawson were pretty ticked off. They, they should have come <laughs> here. You know, this is yeah. the real place where it happened. Yeah, it's but, only six miles north. That's nothing. Uh, so, well, so, uh, so that happens. And then in 1930, I want to get this right. The Orpheum was sold to Len Wickman. He opened it. He opened it as a movie theater. He showed Wings, which was the only Academy Award-winning silent movie, which is kind of interesting. Which was also Gary Cooper's first movie. And then the next year, 1931, the Orpheum shows its first talkie, Dancing Sweeties. That. 1931, I believe, is the end of the silent era 
in Dawson, right, as far as shown movies goes. Now it's talkies all the way. Everyone wants talking films. Everyone is upgrading for that equipment. Is that pretty accurate? Well, they, they, they tried showing the odd silent film, but uh, right. they, they paled in comparison to, you know, and these were old reruns. They might be five or ten years old. Right. So, yes, uh, I think that's a, a fair characterization. So they had a large volume of films that mm-hmm. had been shipped to Dawson over the last 15 or 20 years. Right. And, uh, you know, now there's no purpose for keeping them. Right. right. So, so what, what are they going to do with them? They what are they going to do with them? them? They hauled some of them down to the river and they threw them in the river. Yes. They hauled other material down and they piled it up on the river bank and set it afire. And right. it was a, a rip snorter of a fire. I, I've and, heard. That's how I've described it as a rip snorter. I, I mean, I'm, yeah. for sure. Yeah. The intensity of the, the, the heat was, you know, it kept people 50 to 100 feet away. And I suppose, <laughs> and maybe this is where we can segue into what they did with the rest of the film. I think we can. Yeah, yeah. Let's do that. So, so some of them were thrown in the. Do you want so me this to is, elaborate? Well, so let me let me you say this. Me? I want to just take one step back, and then we'll take two steps forward. Because at this point, this is what's kind of interesting. So talkies come into play, as you mentioned. Silent film. This they're kind of over. So Fred Elliott of the Family Theater, which is in the D AAA, he he's the one who said, "I'm out. I'm out of the business here. Uh, I'm getting out." And he's the one who took him to the waterfront. He got rid of the silent films, and some of them were so some of them were just, were lit on fire. Some were thrown in the river, and others were kept in an archive. So there are still some around. I want to let the audience know there are still some being kept in libraries in Dawson. Uh, but let's pick it up from there. Well, they, uh, they they kept a lot of them in the basement of the Carnegie Library, which was right across the street from the D3A. Mm-hmm. Something we haven't mentioned that your listeners might be interested in was the fact that uh, uh, Walter Creamer, who uh, he was he was quite a, an entrepreneur, decided mm-hmm. that uh, you know in the in the summertime, you know they couldn't use the uh, the hockey arena, so mm-hmm. he had constructed a swimming pool, and mm-hmm. in the summertime they used it. Uh, and it was very popular. You know, there were uh, certain days when the ladies could swim and certain days when kiddies could swim. It's also the, this is the days before chlorine, by the way. I just want to point that out. This is That's just, right. This is just water and That's humans. That's right. And steam yeah. heated. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it soup. wasn't steaming, but uh, they yeah. used steam yeah. to heat the water up so it was comfortable. Right, right. But uh, – you know, Dawson, uh, the population kept declining. So it, it declined from 16,000 to maybe maybe 1,000 people. They can't afford to maintain it to the same standard mm-hmm. that they had years before. And in the uh, the, the wintertime, when they, they covered the swimming pool over, it uh, I think it was getting a little saggy, you know, and when you drop the puck, it, it kept sliding back to center right ice because, right. <laughs> right. So they decided the, the hockey association decided they they'd fill it in. You know, let's get rid of this. It you know it just it, it it isn't functioning anymore. We can't afford to keep it. So they decided to fill it in. And the uh, uh, the fellow who was the secretary mm-hmm. of the. Film Society or the uh, uh, Hockey Association. Def- definitely not the Film Society. <laughs> right. He was also um, um, he was uh, employed by the local bank, but he was also the agent that represented the film distributors. A lot of lot of hats, a lot of hats in a small town. You got it. <laughs> yeah. So he, he wired for instructions. What do what do I do with all this film? And they said, Well, mm. get rid of it. We don't want it back. 
Mm-hmm. So what does he do? He said, well, I, even back then, I, I didn't like the idea of throwing it in the river. And incidentally, in the wintertime in, in Dawson, this is a segue, but people be interested. The uh, the water and sewer system froze up. So they had to mm-hmm. have water delivered and the waste was taken away. So mm-hmm. you'd have uh, uh, a closet and in it would be a removable bucket or tank. Mm. And there'd be a trap door on the outside of the, the building. And you could slide it out and put a fresh one in. And you take this this away. Of course, it was just this great big frozen brown ice cube. They take it to the north end of town and they dump it on the ice. And in the spring, when the uh, the river broke up, it all got flushed down river. Mm, so interesting. That was an interesting way to solve the problem. That's for <laughs> sure. Sure is. Sure well, is. Well, the uh, uh, this fellow decided that uh, he he didn't want to dump the uh, the film on the ice. Maybe he didn't want to even go near that. Uh, it might it must, be it. Yeah. pretty stinky stuff. Yep. And um, at the same time, they had this problem because they wanted to get rid of the swimming pool. So they had to fill it in. And he said, aha, we've got the solution to the problem. The, uh, one of the other members of the executive of the hockey club was a teamster. So they loaded his wagons up and he hauled them across the street and they dumped the stuff into the swimming pool. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how the, the film was disposed of. And over the years, uh, you know, the, the film would keep popping up. And in the newspapers, you'd see a small column advising parents not to let the kids go down there and set this stuff on fire. Because there'd be little right. bits of film poking out of the ground. And the kids would light with a match. And uh, Flood, you know, right. <laughs> right. they they'd get yeah. quite excited by that. And I've also <laughs> been told that uh, they would take these reels and they'd go up. There was one hill, uh, one street that went up the, the hill above Dawson. And they go up this hill and they light the tail end of the film on and then they start rolling it down the, the hill. And as it unraveled, the flame would follow the, the reel down the hill. Jeez. Oh, God, so, that's a whole reel of film up in smoke. Yeah. <laughs> oh, as, as someone real, who real loves this. Yes, no pun intended. Yeah, that is. That is uh, holy cow. Uh, those are I mean, those are great stories. But that's how the film ends up in there. Uh, what's actually there. the funniest thing apart about that is I imagine in in 78 when these were all dug up, it's like, you know, everyone must be like, how in the world did this get what what happened? How did this film end up in the ground here? And I bet you imagine some long, tedious process of going through the history books, through the archives. Nope, didn't quite work like that, did it? <laughs> I think. Uh, tell me, tell me how, how you found out. Okay, the director of the museum, Kathy Jones, mm-hmm. uh, was also a member of another group of ladies. They called themselves the Nuts. Meant no one under thirty. <laughs> she was under thirty, but uh, they yeah. they uh, allowed her to participate. They they produced a mimeographed newsletter that they'd send out biweekly. So mm-hmm. every two weeks, they'd, so she put a little item in in this. It was called the Klondike Corner. Mm-hmm. She put a little item in the Klondike Corner, saying, "Well, we found these films, and does anybody can anybody tell us anything about how they came to be buried there?" Yeah, and as uh, good fortune. Uh, Clifford Thompson, who's the gentleman involved in making mm-hmm. the decision to bury them, was still alive. Mm-hmm. He saw that and he wrote a letter explaining how they came to be buried. In detail. That's <laughs> right. Very good. When yep. I was doing research for the book, I found newspaper items in the paper because now we had a target time period and mm-hmm. you were to look yeah. where w- that that is confirmed. It's described in a couple of small articles in the newspaper. So we, kn- we know it was happening and... Um, 
everything that he said could be verified from the newspaper accounts. That, that's fantastic. Uh, so, so I want to put a button on this. So you have all this information. And so basically, you know, you learn a couple of things. There were a lot of, so when this happens, there's a lot of souvenir takers, people, you know, taking a lot of the reels, taking pieces, trying to get a little piece of history. Uh, you ended up with, I think, 533 wheel reels. Six were a total loss. Newsreels, serials, features, comedies. Uh, there was one gentleman, I love this story. Uh, what is his name? Um, he was a local hoarder. Uh, his, his nickname is Windy, Windy Farr. That's is right. that right? So yeah. he, he ended, <laughs> he's a local order. So he took basically took a bunch of these. And at the end of the book, you talk about what the final total was. But at the end, 26 reels were recovered from Windy Farr to uh, to complete the film find. I mean, that is this is this has got small town written all over it. And being from a small town, I love yeah. the quirky nature of the local hoarder who you know, <laughs> put, puts a wrinkle in, in the whole in the whole story. Yeah, I I, I, I don't want to digress and talk about Windy Farr, but uh, he, yeah, uh, I could describe the you know, how crowded the inside of his house was as well. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, so here's so I want to button it up here. So this is you know this isn't just a find that you know oh it's just for for history you know only only people who are really interested are going to care about this a lot of really important stuff came out of this including a couple of noteworthy finds here as we finish up Polly of the circus 1917 that was samuel goldwyn's first credit uh wildfire uh 1915 was the only movie with lillian russell co-star lionel barrymore uh, you've got lesser works by Harry Lloyd, Maya Murray. You even found some by Theta, uh, Theta Berra. Is that how you say it? We were hoping to find film by Theta Berra. That would have been an... Sam Cool has said, if we could find one real Theta Berra film, he said it would be the worth worth the price of anything we spend recovering these films. And you, did, you didn't... None? No, we oh, didn't. Oh, oh, I thought, okay. He was hopeful, but we never got did. Got it. Got it. Okay, because that would have been amazing. Yeah, because they're yeah. they're all because I think her films were lost in a 20th century storage fire. Because again, right. these things spontaneously combusted. Uh, here's two other interesting things. The, the, I want to close it up. I'm from Chicago, and the newsreels. One of the big finds were footage of the 1919 World Series, the famed Black Sox scandal, uh, which is really incredible. But there was also a judge who was in the Klondike, and I don't want to go too much of a digression here. Uh, it's in your book. It's also in the movie. Uh, but he was extraordinarily anti-union. He ended up after this scandal, uh, Judge Landis from Klondike was put in charge as the commissioner of baseball in 1919 to clean it up. And from the time he was instated to uh, till his death in 1944, there was no there was no integration. Baseball was segregated and there was no players union until his death. So he was, you know, as they said in the Offspring song, he really liked to keep them separated. That was <laughs> that was <laughs> that, like his goal. Uh, so I think. We sprinted through this, Michael. Did I miss any of the any of the big stuff? I think we kind of did what we set out to do. One thing. Okay. Uh, uh, I worked very closely with the director of the Dawson Museum, and uh, mm -hmm. the year uh, uh, following the discovery, Sam Kula had uh, sent us two reels of restored film, and uh, the the agreement that uh, Kathy Jones had made with with Kula was that. Uh, the first showing of these films would be in Dawson City. So September, Labor Day weekend of 1979, we had a, a, a premiere showing of these films in the Palace Grand Theater to okay. a full house, I might add. 
Mm-hmm. He flew in an old time piano player who used to play piano for silent movies. Yes. Uh, and uh, that was, uh, you know, it was quite an event, especially that was the year that Dawson was flooded. And it was mm-hmm. kind of a nice exclamation mark at the end of the, the summer after sure. everything everybody had been through. So we did that. And then uh, a month later, the museum director and I got married and we're married to this day. What a lo- what a beautiful love story. Kathy Jones, the one, the museum, the third person involved, the woman right. who put the newsletter out there that that helped That's you right. figure out where this came from. Uh, you couldn't you couldn't resist, and you married her right after that. That's that's a wonderful story. That's right, and we're both still involved in history, and we're working on a couple of books together. Oh, that's awesome! What what a yeah. great way to end it. Uh, so I mean, so that is a perfect ending. I will. I one the only thing we did not cover were the the, the connection between Hollywood uh, Klondike and the Hollywood. There's a couple of big personalities. Do you have ten minutes to go over some of the famous personalities that came out of the Klondike? I could I could uh, talk about a few of them, sure. Uh, Wonderful. You meant well. You mentioned Alex Pantages. Yes. He um, he wasn't actually the the owner of the Orpheum Theater. He was the manager. Oh, and, got it. Uh, and he uh, went on to uh, uh, he he left the the Yukon in 1902, and uh, he had been shacked up with a lady named uh, Kathleen Rockwell, mm-hmm. uh, who who later became known as Klondike Kate. And when uh, she moved out to Victoria, uh, she took the money that she had and she she purchased a, a, a movie theater in Victoria. And uh, she'd have live entertainment and she'd show films. And uh, uh, within a few months, you can see that Alex Pantages was now managing that theater. Mm-hmm. And that was, I think that was the first movie house that uh, that he opened before he went on to have a, a, a chain of movie houses all across the western half of the continent, all the way from Winnipeg, Manitoba, to Los Angeles, to Victoria. He got his start as, as the, the manager, uh, the theater manager in the Orpheum. So that, that is just one nugget of, of story, the connection between Hollywood and the Klondike. And we're going right. to- But wait, there's more. Yeah. But wait, there's more. Uh, so st- so listen uh, on all your podcast platforms. We're going to do a bonus episode uh, about some of the famous personalities. But until then, you know, thank you so much for being on the show. This is just a great story. As a person who loves film and film history, uh, this is just a great read. And we sped through it. There's so many incredible little nuggets. I know I've used that pun too many times in this episode. Uh, so how can people find your book, which you're showing right there, Hollywood and the Klondike? How can people find the book and how can people get in touch with you to learn more or to purchase this book? Well, they uh, they can probably go to Amazon. It's being distributed in the United States. So you, if you prefer to support your local bookstore, you could go and request a copy. Hollywood and the Klondike by Michael Gates. And the, the publisher is... Uh, Harbor Publishing, the Lost Moose imprint. And <laughs> I love that. <laughs> there's a story behind that, but I won't get into it. And yeah. uh, the uh, uh, if if you want to contact me directly, uh, go online and uh, type in Michael Gates History Hunter Yukon News, and uh, my columns will come up. And I always have my uh, email address at the at the end of each article, so people will be able to contact me that way. What is it? Just so I could throw it on the screen. MSGates at NorthwestTel.net. And that's uh, Microsoft Gates, MSGates, G A T E S, 
at <laughs> N-O-R-T-H-W-E-S-T-E-L.net. My, you're not the Microsoft Gates, no relation, but it does help None people. Whatsoever. will help remember the email. Uh, and nor, which, am I, nor am I related to Swiftwater Bill, who uh, I write about in the book. Absolutely. There are lots of gates involved here. Uh, but you, I will put you know easy links on the website so that they can find that. And of course, I always link to a local bookstore when it comes to books. And that's fascinatingnouns.com is where you can find that. And you can find us on social media at Fascinating Noun on Twitter, at Fascinating Nouns on Facebook. And of course, you can find this show if you're listening to this on your favorite podcast platform. Watch the video, youtube.com forward slash Daniel J. Glenn. Uh, but that's it for this episode. Uh, this has been such a great ride through history. So, uh, Michael, thank you so much for this, for writing the book, and for discovering this treasure trove of fabulous films. Daniel, it was great talking to you. Thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And I'm guessing after listening to this, you never want to miss another episode. You're going to want to subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, and we even have links right there on our show website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find all the links right there. And let's say you don't have a favorite podcasting platform. That's no problem. You can listen to every episode right there on the website, which is once again, fascinatingnouns.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's a great way to learn more about the episodes that you're listening to, find out about upcoming episodes, and to just keep in touch with the community. It's right there on the website. Speaking of community, there's no better way to stay in touch than on social media. And you can find links to our show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the front page of FascinatingNouns.com. And speaking of YouTube, there's a video version of this episode there right now, uh, as well as other past episodes and all future episodes. It's going to be right there, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. It's a great way to see all the guests and, uh, you know, check it out live and in person. Feel like you're there in studio. Great way to do it, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And finally, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com and check out all of my projects and see what's going on. Once again, thank you for listening. End of transmission.